everyone. Welcome back to the Leadership Podcast, a podcast where we talk about the social responsibility of business leaders through the lens of the week's news and try to figure out who is getting it right and who is stepping in it this week. My name is Caleb Gardner. And I'm Adrielle Parker. Today, we're going to have a great conversation with Pamela Slim, an award-winning author, speaker, and agency owner who has spent three decades helping business owners scale their businesses. She's an author of multiple books, a small business and licensing IP expert based in Mesa, Arizona. We're going to chat with her about some really interesting community work that she's doing with BIPOC entrepreneurs. But in the meantime, we are going to dig into some economic news of the week, including inflation being a little hotter than we expected and how companies are reacting. Trump getting yet another multiple millions of dollars in fines in his New York civil fraud trial, some news about New York City suing the social media giants and some bonkers new technology from OpenAI Mm -hmm. and text-to-video. And then, of course, we're going to end always by good news of the week. Let's start there. It's Monday morning. Adriel, how are you feeling? It's Monday. It's President's Day, whatever that means to folks. It's a strange holiday. I mean, it's an interesting one to have in the middle of Black History Month. But you know, here we are. Yeah, I feel like it's one of those where every single year I'm like, do we have that day off? Like, it's one of those where it's like, what what level of importance do I need to give this? this yeah, I, I don't know. It's interesting. It's interesting. I, I, I realized today I was like, oh, I need to make some calls. And then I was like, oh, none of these places are open. <laughs> so that was it. Yeah, that's right. But and and yet leadership presses on. Yeah, we're, here we we're are. still here. We're still pushing forward. <laughs> I'm, I'm here. We're for still it. in your headphones fresh <laughs> on a Tuesday when you if you got the day off and you're starting your week. So yeah, yeah. Are your kids in school today? Is that still a thing? For, no, for they are out. Okay. okay. They are out. Okay. So that's one of those where it's like, oh, is this an important enough holiday for my kids to be off of school? Oh, sure. yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I tell you. You know, someone's got to gotta celebrate the white men who led our country. I guess it's us. There you go. There you go. I will say, I feel like <laughs> there are, from a kid's standpoint, I'm like, there are much fewer snow days, right? Or oh, am I yeah. making that up? We've had... We had one snow day this year, and I felt like it was a bit of a stretch. It almost feel, felt like a little bit of a gimme because mm-hmm. the school, it was really cold. I'll give them that. Like, yeah. they, they, they basically let them off because of the cold, but like, okay. we didn't even get that much snow. Yeah, I feel huh. like we just have had such a mild winter that they felt like they had to give the kids something. Right, right. It was it was like that here. We had a snow day recently, and I was like, "This is this doesn't make sense." They were like, "Oh, you can." I guess the kids had remote schooling. <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> like, just let them have the day off, please, <laughs> please. Yeah, I saw Colbert make a joke about that. He was like, "Hey, the kids had to do remote learning, which means the chances of them learning were remote." <laughs> That's a good pretty one. good. That's a good one. It's pretty good. I like it. I, but I got. Don't you feel like, like years ago, you would have just had the day off, and now you've got to do remote learning. Like the kids have got to be like, ah, pandemic. Yeah, Damn it. I think the same for us, right? When we, well, not us. We are we work remote. But for people that now are in this sort of hybrid situation, whereas like you know, work yeah. would have been shut down for a snow day, terrible weather. Now it's like, oh, but you can just open your laptop. Oh, from but home. you can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can still work. Oh, not cool. Not cool. Yeah, that's the good and the bad about flexible work for Definitely. sure. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, well, what what happened this week? We've got a couple of interesting stories to chat through, including mm-hmm. some economic news of the week that inflation was actually hotter than expected in July. I think the economists were expecting it to cool a little bit more than it did. Sure. Which means that it's looking like it's going to be a few more months before the Fed enacts those rate cuts. They really mm-hmm. want to see more uh, slowing of inflation than is happening. And we got a dueling story this week from a couple of different sources that companies, especially CFOs, are still looking for ways to tighten their belts. Obviously, we've, we're getting all of this economic news in terms of layoffs, but it looks like they're looking to cut back costs in lots of different ways, mm-hmm. which is interesting to me because we're, we're talking about how positive the economy is going to be this year, but we're still in this like, I don't know what you'd call it, like a scarcity mindset or like a, I think it's an, it's really an uncertainty mindset. Mm -hmm. Like Wall Street is always going to reward you for cutting back and getting quote unquote leaner. So why not do it when we're in this, like, we don't know what's going to happen the rest of the year mindset. Yeah. I think people are in sort of this like panic mode. There's just so much uncertainty. So I get it. It, 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 
it aligns with where a lot of folks are right now. So I, I understand, but I'm curious to see how they make these cuts, how these organizations make these cuts with all of the layoffs that they've kind of already done. Me too. I mean, I, I just, I think we're in one of those times now where it feels like a little bit of a self-reinforcing mechanism. Like people mm-hmm. are cutting just because other people are cutting. Mm-hmm. Like this is what this is what happens. Yeah. And I do think that we're at the point, we talked about this with DEI teams, but like it comes to a point where it, the, there are times when it is responsible to cut back, of course, but sure. like just because everyone else is cutting back doesn't mean you need to. And at some point you making investments while everyone else is scared mm-hmm. is actually a, you know, a way to be out ahead. And especially when the economy comes roaring back, like be in a better position. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because it also comes with, we've talked about this and I think, you know, we said we expected AI to come in and start taking some of these jobs much, much later, but here we are. I mean, one of the companies that's done a round of layoffs is Instacart and they're basically saying that with that 7% cut, they are going to be reinvesting that money into advertising and also AI powered shopping carts, which I think is really interesting. So I'm curious to see how this impacts other roles or sort of these tech adjacent or tech hybrid companies where they can now use these tools. It's scary stuff. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Well, one person who is looking for ways to cut costs because he's got a lot of money that (laughs) is going out of his pocket (laughs) recently is our friend Donald Trump, the presumptive Republican nominee who has been indicted on 91 counts of uh, various criminal activity, is now looking looking like he is facing a $450 million verdict in his civil fraud case. The judge basically took into account his, quote, complete lack of contrition, which he said bordered on pathological, in the judgment (laughs) that um, he has manipulated his net worth in order to inflate his assets. And he's ordering him to pay a penalty of nearly $355 million plus interest. Mm. And New York Times reported that could wipe out his entire stockpile of cash. So that plus the E. Jean Carroll verdict. And he's looking a lot less wealthy these days. Yeah. I I mean, I I heard that he claims that he's going to appeal both verdicts of course you know he's one of those folks that just never ceases to amaze me i'm no longer surprised by the things that he does or says i'm just it's it's really hard to wrap your head around how a human can operate as he does like i just heard i I watched bits of his recent speech and the fact that he even brought up eugene carroll was just astonishing to me I'm like, wouldn't you not want to say anything <laughs> it about It is pathological, though. Like, I just, I honestly think he cannot help himself. He yeah. gets the applause. He gets the, like, he knows it's going to get the applause line because his people that follow him are also pathological. And so he can't help himself. It's, yeah. It's insane. Yeah. Do you think but he'll like, be able to appeal? Either? I think he will appeal. Like, uh, I just don't. There's I've I've heard from various and I say heard on mm-hmm. podcasts and mm-hmm. other like and read not like legal experts whispering in my ears, but that there's very little recourse for him there. Like he can appeal, of course, sure. but like these are pretty tight decisions <laughs> that are like hard to argue against. Sure. And especially if you think about it in the Eugene Carroll one, like he already had a verdict of guilty that he did the actual thing. Right. He's on like he like I just it blows my mind, honestly, to think about like the amount of evidence that is against him in that trial. Mm-hmm. And in this one, similar thing. Like, again, it wasn't the whole point wasn't that did you do this? It was we knew you did this. How much do you actually have to pay us back? Right, right, right. So I just don't see like, yeah, he can appeal to delay the verdict. Sure. But how is he going to not have to eventually pay up? I mm-hmm. I don't I see very little path toward that. Hmm. Well, we'll see how that that goes. Yeah, for real. My goodness. I just we're in I know we we say this like week after week, but like it is hard to wrap your head around how unprecedented it is to have a front runner of a major party be facing 91 criminal indictments, mm-hmm. be ordered combined to pay almost a billion dollars in various fines from those trials. Right. To still be the presumptive nominee of the party. 
And to not know whether or not he's going to be broke or in jail or both by the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And maybe still win. And maybe still That's win. I'm, I feel like I am. I, I can't even wrap my head around it. You're not alone. <laughs> You're not alone at all. I'm just hold, I'm still just like holding my breath that like the all the people saying if he's indicted, it will make a difference mm-hmm. or not indicted. I guess he has been indicted if he's found guilty. Sure. It will actually make a difference mm-hmm. in their voting. That's what I'm hanging my hat on because we all know that the campaign, the Biden campaign has been struggling with the age thing. Yep. I have to I have to just verbalize this amazing thing I saw on threads this week, which was somebody tw- uh, tweeting, <laughs> somebody putting on threads, somebody threading on threads. They really mm-hmm. need to get that language down. Um What's worse, Gandalf's age or Saruman's plan to align himself with the Dark Lord Sauron so he can later overthrow him and gain absolute power over Middle-earth for himself? They're both so old. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> oh. That's a real good and dirty deep, deep gut, but the, you know, here we are. The age jokes never stop. I mean, yeah, between that and I mean uh, the the response to what's been going on in Palestine, I think it it's seriously impacting Biden's campaign currently. So we can only hope yeah. that our friend Trump, and we say friend, but ironically so, our friend Trump is found guilty. Yep. Well, speaking of being guilty, <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is a great segue. New York City is suing social media platforms over teen mental health concerns. What I what I found really interesting about this wasn't that they were suing Meta and TikTok and you know, all the ones that kind of usual suspects when it comes to teen mental health, but they mm-hmm. also threw in Google and mm-hmm. YouTube. So they're taking out a pretty broad, I guess, definition of what they consider social media here. But they're saying all of these platforms are not safeguarding kids enough. They're contributing to negative mental health outcomes and they're they aren't doing enough. Yeah. Which, you know what? They're correct. Yeah. Every day I feel like I am playing whack-a-mole with my kids in terms of what they're seeing on youtube in terms of what they're seeing what they're what apps they're asking for like my we finally let my teenage son mm-hmm. my 14 year old get on snapchat recently because so many of his friends were on snapchat yeah and we just sit down and give a long conversation with him mm-hmm. about the appropriate uses of snapchat and how it is being used for all kinds of nefarious things because of the anonymity on it yeah. And he, of course, kind of rolled his eyes and was like, oh, dad, I know these things. Right. Mm-hmm. But I don't take for granted any of that shit. Like, I'm no. like, no, you need to you can hear it again. Yeah, you can hear it again. Yeah, that that honestly, social media is one thing that terrifies me about <laughs> having children, because it's like there's only so much you can do to safeguard. Right. And to try to protect exactly. them from it. And there's just so many different layers of potential harm there. I mean, from, you know, children being bullied to just simply ingesting information that is incorrect to the endless scrolling and losing sleep and the anxiety, yep. the, the fear of missing out on things because your friend saw this and you didn't. And oh, yeah. I just, I can't even imagine. I can't. And imagine. that's really what they're saying, right? We're not talking about CSAM. We're not talking about like, uh, illegal things mm-hmm. we're talking about how little you've done to actually prepare the children for the anxiety yeah. the comparison all of the kind of like mental anguish that comes with social comparison on these apps mm-hmm. and we talked about this a few weeks ago on the happiness data right like how the thing that has changed our society and made us marketedly yes <laughs> less happy mm-hmm. is how we have introduced social media into our society. Like the data just shows our happiness took a plunge when we started doing this. And so, of course, we get people in like the most hormonal times of their lives Mm -hmm. (laughs) digging in when you're already worried about social comparison. And yeah, let's open up an Instagram account. That's terrible. Yeah, it's it's rough. I mean, in a lot of the data that I've looked at really focuses on adults, you know, and the psychology behind right. social media and the impact it has on adults. So I can't even imagine for children when you're you're not even fully developed. You're you know, it's it's I, I'm right. Thinking back to when I was a preteen or teen, I'm like, there's no way I would have survived social media in this day and age. I'm like, so grateful it wasn't there when I was a teenager. One hundred percent. No way. Oh, that would have been that. I mean, I already like was such a nerdy kind of isolated mm. 
kid, like, oh, this would have been sort of been terrible. Yeah. Like I'm watching my son go through it. And thankfully he's not that interested in social media apps, but he is like feeling the social pressure from his in real life relationship. So I'm glad he's not that interested in like online social media that would just make it worse. Mm -hmm. For sure. Hopefully it stays that way. Fingers crossed for you. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) Exactly. 100%. (sighs) Ooh, well, I don't know if you had a chance to watch any of the unveiling of OpenAI's new product, Sora, which is their text-to-video platform, based their new generative AI text-to-video platform. Mm-hmm. And oh my God, it, it one of the f- few things that have shocked me in the last years, we've been watching this generative AI kind of revolution mm-hmm. unfold. But this is one of the times where I was like, oh, they just ended a ton of people's jobs. Like yeah. these videos are amazing yeah yeah they're not perfect like you can kind of tell if you look like close enough you know but in terms of like b-roll footage or like extra footage to add into something holy shit like they're really good yeah they're they're pretty i mean for this to be sort of the at least the first iteration that we're seeing it's really really good i saw one clip of appeared to be a couple sitting on a beach not sure if you saw that one and suddenly a shark comes out and the way the woman turns around, it's very unnatural. It's like almost her yeah. entire head rotates on her shoulders. But the overall quality. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. The overall quality of it for that to have been like a text prompt initially is a shocking, truly shocking. Yeah. And I've seen a number of text to video AI generated videos before, but most of them have been Same. pretty short, like you know, you take your favorite meme and you can animate it for a couple of seconds and you can right. pretty much tell it's been AI generated, but these are pretty darn good. So yeah, they're, they're amazing. I agree that there was one I was watching where it was like an old woman's birthday party and, mm-hmm. you know, generative AI famously has a really hard time with hands. Yeah. And oh, like, yeah. that is one way that you can still mm-hmm. n- tell when something is AI because hands are just so hard for it yeah so you can kind of see the people clapping but the clapping is like real awkward or they're like not quite clapping and the hands are really weird so like it's not there yet but if you think about that this is the worst this technology will ever be yeah and it feels like we just jumped through oh yeah like we a year ago this was terrible this was terrible technology and now it is it has just grown leaps and bounds in just one year yeah so what do you think that what are the implications of this like my first thought was well, no more hiring those drone crews to get, you know, those B-roll shots on location or like getting people to take a bunch of photography or video of a site. You know, like I just I feel like this upends the entire video industry in terms of getting those extra shots. Yeah. I still think it'll be needed here and there. Like if something's never been filmed before, for example, like something brand new, you can't exactly generate it. But it definitely shrinks the industry at least, right? For sure. And again, if this is like the first version that we're getting, we're going to be getting, you know, to the public, I I can't even imagine what a couple iterations of this is going to look like and how quickly it could come to be. Um, For sure, people's jobs are going to be up in the air. They already are, right? Like, I've explored creating AI generated videos to make like faceless YouTube channels. And I had I tried to do that three to six months ago, I would have had to look for someone to be a video editor, maybe do voiceovers, write a script. Now you can generate all of that in minutes yeah, all on your own. There are a lot of faceless YouTube videos out there now. Yeah, Like tons. faceless, basically like fake voice too. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. I, I have thought a lot about how one of the most sought after professions by young people now is YouTuber. YouTuber. Mm-hmm. Like, yes. Yep. And yep. so imagine coming up of, of age with these generative AI tools and learning how to use them and then wanting to be in front of the camera as a YouTuber mm-hmm. and being able to make these videos like really fast. I'm, I'm snapping. I don't know why I'm snapping on a podcast. <laughs> like you can actually hear that. But like super, super fast, right? right and right. And being able to put out a shit ton of content in a tiny amount of time. Like if you know what you're doing and you're able to use them and able to mm-hmm. really do a good, tell a good story. Yeah. You don't you're not going to need a lot of equipment for this. No, you could actually, Caleb, record and upload yourself a couple of videos and a couple of clips of good audio clips of your voice. And you could use that and you could basically create an avatar of yourself and you could just type in a script. This already exists. You type in a script and then it'll just generate a bunch of videos of you. 
Will it look a little off and glitchy? Sure. But <laughs> you can make the content and uh, the average person may not know the difference, which is scary. I was reading one article about about this new uh, release from OpenAI, and they did an interview with the founder of a, a site called TrueMedia.org, um, and they were just really concerned about the implications, possible implications of this. And this organization, True Media, they're basically a nonprofit. They're looking to fight disinformation from AI, so mm-hmm. they pretty much push back on deep fakes and any sort of disinformation that comes with political campaigns and they were essentially saying this could not have come at a worse time and i'm like i didn't even think about that i was just so excited when i saw the visuals and now i'm like oh gosh this is an election year and now when are they actually releasing this to the public are they doing that this year i would assume so since they've teased it that's scary I mean, I'm I'm comforted a little bit by the news that we've seen in the last few weeks about how a lot of these companies are are trying to coordinate on mm. being able to tell when something is AI generated by, you know, kind of tagging things in the back end. And even even in this mm-hmm. demonstration of Sora, OpenAI has their little like OpenAI logo in the in the corner of all of these videos. So you mm-hmm. can tell. I mean, obviously, somebody who knows what they're doing can crop that out or try to like remove it. But sure. I'm hopeful that these companies are smart enough and it seems like they're trying to coordinate on making sure we know what is generated from AI and what is not. So that gives me a little bit of hope that they're trying to get out ahead of it, but it's going to be it's going to be whack-a-mole a little bit, mm-hmm. right? For sure. Cuz scammers going to scam. Yeah, I think we're going to have to lean on the community pretty heavily for flagging as well. Did you see that the University of Pennsylvania is now offering a bachelor's <laughs> in artificial intelligence? I did. First I did. in the country. Yeah. So this is it's becoming a real thing. Yeah. It's becoming a real thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Last story I feel like we need to talk about before we go chat with Pamela Slim. Did you see the news that came out that Ozempic and other weight loss drugs were trying to work with body positive influencers to basically talk about the drugs? Yeah, I heard about that. It's it's interesting. It's quite the change, <laughs> quite the shift from where we've been yeah, over the past few years. The, the story was great because it was basically a bunch of these influencers saying, wait, you want me to talk about it like Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. what i talk about right like the whole point is to remove some of the stigma so you're saying you want me to be talking about weight loss drugs this does not seem like a good fit i kind of get where they're coming where they're saying like this could change people's lives and we've talked about like the good and the bad of these pills but it definitely feels like a little bit of a mismatch to go to the folks who are trying to say like be okay in your own body yeah yeah i'm not really I have a hard time with it. I I don't know what to think. It's a big deal to like pursue. I mean, there are pill versions of thing products like Ozempic, Similglide, I think is the the actual drug yeah. or Semaglutide. But a lot of these are injectables that are being promoted and not enough people are talking about the side effects, which I think is a little scary. It's just constantly yeah. touted as like this miracle drug that will help you lose weight and all the celebrities are doing it. So I'm not really sure. Well, I, I I see the whole body positivity thing. And, and and I wonder, is it like they're trying to eventually convert people that have been okay with their bodies and shapes and sizes to slowly come on over to the weight loss drug side? I mean, I guess that was where their head was at. But I can definitely see it from these influencers point of view, which is like, what? What the hell? <laughs> like, yeah. What, I... what, are you, what are you talking <laughs> about? Like, I'm trying to, I mean, okay, let's give a generous reading of this. Let's say that there are health benefits to losing weight. Of course. Right? Like yeah. the, the, the most positive spin that I've heard about Ozempic and some of these other drugs is the way that this changes people's lives. Obviously, like there's something about confidence and body positivity mm-hmm. and all that. But like take it aside what you look like. Mm-hmm. The way the really the most positive benefit is that, you know, your heart is going to be healthier. You're going to live longer. Like there are a lot of ancillary things that come with being overweight um, in terms of your health span. Right. And if you can get that weight under control and there are a lot of like addictive behaviors that come with being overweight, like if you can have something that helps with that addictive part of that, right. Then that is, that is tangibly a good thing, I think. Right. So I, I guess if you kind of look at it from that and you say, okay, that is why we want to approach people who are talking about body positivity and fat acceptance, Mm -hmm. then maybe you could see how they kind of got there. But I don't feel like we're 
there as a society to be able to connect those dots that easily. Sure. Yeah. And so I do think it's a little bit of a miss to go to the people talking about fat acceptance and say, like, can you help us talk about this weight loss drug? It's like, right. They're going to be like, what the fuck? What are you talking right. about? <laughs> Unless they're coming with a really good deal, I guess that uh, capitalism, I guess that's one way to approach it. I don't know if that's been part of it, but uh, yeah, I'm with you. I'm not really sure what what they were thinking with this one, but. Yeah, it feels yeah. a little bit like you got to there's got to be a mental loop to even. To even considering something like that, and we're just not we're, we are not there yet. Yeah, yeah, not at all. It's interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. All right. You ready to talk to Pamela Slim? I am. Let's go chat. Very interested to hear what she's going to say. All right. Let's chat with Pam. We're here with Pamela Slim, an award-winning author, speaker, and agency owner who has spent three decades helping business owners scale their businesses and IP. Pam's agency specializes in, in the design and development of certification and licensing programs. She's the author of Escape from Cubicle Nation, Body of Work, and The Widest Net. Some of my favorite books have been very influential to me. We'll chat about. Pam and her husband, Daryl, co-founded the Keck Community Lab in Mesa, Arizona, where they host scores of BIPOC entrepreneurs and contribute to the local social health and economic development of their community. Pam, so glad to have you with us. We've got so much to chat about. How are you doing? I'm doing so good. I'm happy to be here. Tell us, I guess, first a little bit more about Ke, because I've seen you post about this and the profiles of the entrepreneurs you're working with are really interesting and I feel like might be related to some other things we wanted to chat about. So tell us about that community that you're working with. It's timely because we're actually closing the circle on this space. We've been here for eight years. So this wow. has been a really intentional project of my husband and I. My husband is a Diné. He's Navajo. He's a traditional healer. And about eight years ago, it was actually a precursor to writing The Widest Net. As research, I did a 23-city tour visiting all kinds of places where I'd done book tours before, sharing this model of community building that I'd had in my head that I had been using with people for a long time. And for some reason, in Berkeley, California, Mothership Hacker Moms, shout out Mothership Hacker Moms, an amazing Berkeley-like space. <laughs> I asked the question, how many of you have ever seen a Native American business presenter presenting on a business topic at a business conference? And then I asked that same question in 23 cities all throughout the U.S. and, and Canada, and only seven people had. Uh, wow. And four of those were in Vancouver, Canada. And so I was like, it is not because they don't exist. I had been in conference rooms filled with thousands of Native business owners, architects and engineers and insurance folks and everybody you can imagine. There, not shockingly in this country, <laughs> was invisibility around the leadership that existed. So my husband yeah. and I you know, took that in and then we ended up finding a space. I just initially wanted to move my office. We ended up finding this beautiful space where all of a sudden we were like, gosh, what would happen if we really had a space by day that was our office? And then evenings and weekends, we could just open to members of our community. So we spent very deliberate time over the years, really utilizing every single part of the method. I don't know how you all are with developing things, but to me, it's the most exciting thing to really test it. <laughs> like, yeah. I was known on a small corner of the internet for my books and my work. I was completely unknown in downtown Mesa, like where I had lived for about I don't know, 10, 12 years already, because I had never deliberately <laughs> taken the time to really connect with community. So it was literally like having people walk through the door. We created a space that's very beautiful. Our son, Jeff, is an artist who has beautiful paintings in the windows. And people would just be like, what is this place? And we're like, I don't know. What do you want it to be? And we did that. Really, we never have stopped doing that. But it's ended up being a connection place and just to underline highlighting the leadership that exists but is rarely seen. And we have a no bureaucracy. Folks come in and use the space for whatever they want. And because mm. of that, I think, really deliberate structure, we've had so many things that really sprout from it, including as desired, like spaces. There's a social and art tech space uh, founded by indigenous women entrepreneurs in, in Phoenix now that started incubating here. Many people now have their own physical spaces. So from a theory of change perspective, for those that dork out about things like that, like I do, we felt what the intention was for a particular period of time of having that structure. And probably about a year ago, my husband and I were like, yeah, we kind of feel like when the lease is up, 
we're probably rounding the corner on that project because we really want to be moving forward in different and deeper ways of working more directly in partnership with folks. And then also we have a son in college and a daughter on her way. So we're like personally funding this every year was probably not the smartest <laughs> financial decision. Hear that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. June 30th is when we, when we're going to close the doors to this chapter, but I will be in a super exciting new chapter embedded with folks we've worked with a long time down here. So it's not, it's not goodbye. It's just a sort of a, a new step in the process. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask if you had a sense, semblance of what comes next. So it sounds like you've got some inklings of w- what's going to come after that. So uh, one of the things we really wanted to chat with you about was the state of small business in this mm-hmm. country because we had been chatting all, so much about kind of the macroeconomic impacts of the economy in the last few years, but don't feel like we've gotten a good perspective on the local entrepreneur, the local business owner, the small business owner. And you've been working hand in hand with these folks for eight years. I know you've released some IP that's about how do you market a business? How do you grow a business from the ground up in, in like from a small business perspective, not mm. from necessarily a corporate perspective? So what have you learned from those folks as you've been working hand in hand with them, especially in the last couple of years as we've been looking at is the economy good or bad? Check yes or no. <laughs> right. It's so interesting and, and complicated, as all of you know, because it's the classic consulting answer, which is it depends I think it Mm. depends a lot on where you are. We've seen in our own local downtown area, it's the result of many years of very specific development that has been happening downtown. And we know we had COVID and the shutdown and everything between that. So we actually had lots and lots of connections. Some of the partners I'm working with that I'll actually be co-officing with in the next phase, they're called Rail. They're a, a nonprofit CDC, but they did lots of like super hands-on work with business owners to make sure that they like could fill out their forms to get PPP money in and got a lot of Mm -hmm. money and connection rolling. So in places like ours, where on one hand, there's, we've had billions of dollars of development that's happening in our little tiny downtown in Mesa, Arizona, which is not uh, probably common. So on one hand, there have been really big dollars running through that do not run all the way through the community and the neighborhoods. Again, not shocking. There's been a lot of gentrification, increase in you know rates for rent, people, especially folks of color, being moved out into the neighborhoods. Then mm-hmm. at the same time, there's this really interesting connection that we've had with the ongoing development of community and connection that has a positive momentum for things that are happening. So I think it's just an interesting snapshot that where if you're just looking at the macro factors and not taking into consideration the local ecosystem, how are players working, how are people working together, and then who is we, one of my favorite questions, (laughs) there always are some people who are going to do exceptionally well. And I think this also expands out over the general group of people that I work with personally who are all over the world, many of the folks I work with on a day-to-day basis are service business owners. So agencies or training companies or individual thought leaders, I'll say, especially 2023 was rough. There were Mm. consumer behaviors that were happening on the service business level for either people selling B2B or B2C that meant that there was a real slowdown in sales cycles. People just have had a really hard time making a decision. And I know in my own business, I've been in business 28 years and I've been really lucky to really rarely have any kind of a major slowdown. But one thing I would notice, somebody would call for jumping on, like doing a connection call to figure out if we were a good fit for coaching or something like that. And they'd be like, great, I can't, this would be like in, I don't know, July. And they'd be like, I can't wait to work with you next March. And normally it would be, I can't wait to work with you next week. And so I noticed that people are taking greater care with their financial decisions, which I actually think is a good thing. And there has been real reverberations that, as you said, I don't think people have seen with some of the macro changes and things moving in the right directions. That it is a mystery to me sometimes that a lot of the specific perspective that I'll take as a business coach is to look with your eyes wide open at what's happening, not try to pretend things are happening that they're not, but to also Mm. 
always be doing what I call tiny marketing actions. Just not the worst thing that one can do is to sit back and wait to see, see if it's going to be better, hold on, hold off on plans. I don't mean plans that involve a huge investment of money, but in terms of constantly making connections, having conversations, planting seeds, that's to me always the best insurance, even when something yeah. is really slow. Yeah, 100%. I mean, Adriel and I both are in the services business in one way or another. And I think we both experienced a little bit of that, right, Adriel? Even even if we don't work with necessarily small businesses, you still got to like put yourself out there oh, basically yeah. all the time. Definitely, definitely. There's just like this never ending cycle. And then I think there's always the concern of your personal brand, especially with social, you know, and, and if you're using your name, right, your name is who you are in your personal and professional life. Um, and I like to think of it as sort of work-life integration versus, versus sort of like that balance because I'm like, I... I don't feel like I switch, you know, flip a switch between work and non-work. I just exist in all of these spaces as I am. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, work and non-work, it's just a construct we've made yeah. anyway. So, yeah. you know, like we get referrals from friends all the time, mm -hmm. you know, people that we know in personal life. So you're right. It's, it's blurry, yep. which makes it the whole like signing off and signing on the like mental switching of it a little bit messy sometimes as an entrepreneur. But definitely part of part and parcel I think of what what we what we do. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think some of it is a personal decision that you make and there can be a time where you really are hurting for business and like you really really need work and because of the kind of role that you play within your business. I always think about it where my clients there there's no line. I mean, I don't want to say there's no line. <laughs> Very often my clients follow me on social, we're friendly, we'll like text GIFs and TikToks back and forth in addition to yeah. working on business models and stuff like that. So Same. it's not everybody, but it's common. And so I do really think and pay attention to knowing that many of them were really going through a difficult time. Whenever I have different things, either personally or professionally that are going on, I really want to be conscious about the way that I'm showing up and what I'm sharing. And there can be that, like, I'm in the moment of some personal train wreck, whatever it could be. And I just think, is this going to be helpful in the role that I give? And not wanting to be disingenuous or just appear in which everything is okay all the time. But oh it's a delicate balance sometimes. That is the hard part, right? Like trying to, to Adriel's point, when it's just your name out there, that is the professional brand. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit more of a economic risk to being like, I'm struggling. Yeah. Right? That's right. I mean, yes and no. And then then you just look at what people need or what they need to feel a connection. My my friend Mark Silver, who writes at Heart of Business, he talks about how that level of analysis and vulnerability can be really helpful, but it's like you want to share about it after you've been through the accident and you have recovered, where you can say, let me talk ah. about a time a couple months ago when things were really rough and here's what I was thinking and here's what I learned about it because it, it's hard not to sometimes want to use that beautiful connection. I, I feel a beautiful connection. I have so many friends and relatives and, and social media. And so when times are hard, sometimes it, it, it's hard not to be leaning against them. And sometimes it's appropriate to do it. Yeah. But I don't think it's appropriate when you're in a specific role, again, where I know that my clients are looking at me not to be perfect at all, but to be demonstrating this grounded, powerful strength. And then I need to have yeah. a really strong circle that I can just let it all rip, which I do, where I can just say exactly what's going on and, you know, holler and wail and do whatever, whatever I need to do. Right. Mm. It's a little bit contextually dependent. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Depending on your relationship with that person I hear, but it does feel like I'd, I'd love to know what you both think about this, but it feels a little like Maybe that's, I don't know, maybe that's what Instagram's like close friends, you know, like those, those like smaller circles of people are the people that you can kind of be vulnerable with in real time versus yeah. when your, your personal brand is your professional brand, like kind of letting it be vulnerable in real time with the kind of wider world. Mm -hmm. I don't know, Adriel, I know you, you are always refreshingly to me on this podcast, at least being like, no, nah, I had a shitty week. Like, <laughs> you just, like, we'll put it out there. So I'd love to hear what you think about that. Like, how do you balance that for yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a delicate line because on one hand, I'm, I am I aim to just be authentic. I think we've talked about that mm -hmm. word quite a bit. That was yeah. like the word of last year, right? The official 
I don't know who decided, but the authenticity was the word of, of 2023. <laughs> of yeah. And so I think there's always this delicate balance where it's like, yes, I want to be who I am. And I also want to normalize things for people. Um, I just had a conversation last week with a friend of mine, actually two weeks ago, and we were talking about mental health. And I just noticed she was not in the best place. And we, mm. I had this very open and honest conversation with her and shared my experiences. I didn't pressure her at all. I just kind of let her know, like, it's this is normal. It's okay to, you know, seek out professional help. We met up again last week after she took that week and actually reached out to a couple folks. And she was like, oh, my gosh, I feel so much better. And I there's clarity. And I'm mm. so glad I we had that conversation and I was able to pursue, you know, some professional guidance. And so little things like that, you know, I think it, it, there's some value in still being who you are mm. and, and showcasing that vulnerable vulnerability. But with that said, I am sometimes hesitant when it comes to social where I'm like, oh, do I post this right now? Is this going to mm. backfire? Do people care? <laughs> like, <laughs> So I'm curious to hear from you, Pamela, as you're sort of coaching mm. people, what sort of guidance you give, especially to you know, small business owners where, you know, I don't, yeah. you don't have all of the resources in the world. And, you know, uh, right now for me, at least working in DEI, I, the leads aren't as, as heavy as they were even just a year ago. And so I'm always hesitant. I'm like, if I post this, will I lose clients or potential clients, which yeah. is unfortunate to have to even think about. Yeah, well, I th I think of it. My friend Colleen Wainwright defines personal brand as just you amplified, mm. which I think is a really beautiful way, and not mm. necessarily you louder, but just really who you are when done in the right way. Really amplifying who you are. I don't personally think about it like as my personal brand. I think about it more in the relationship that I have with people and the specific role that I'm playing in a given time, mm. and so. It can be, and, and it's contextual around roles. So, right, as you're saying, like in the in the context of yeah. work that you're doing, knowing the specific role that you have as world issues are happening, as local issues are happening, there's a contextual piece I'm imagining, right, in your work where given the nature of what you do and how it is that you choose to show up to that work and what role you play, mm -hmm. that's part of what really guides how it is that you decide, like, what to say, when to say, how to say it, because in one hand, it would be like betraying yourself, but then it's also knowing that people are looking to you specifically mm -hmm. for a perspective and discernment, like on a particular issue. Yeah. I can say like, for what I know about what they need after all these years, let's look at the situation. Definitely. Some of the data says that it's been hard overall in service businesses. A lot of agencies have been hit really hard. You know, here's some of the data. And Here's what I found that can be really helpful for navigating through, because I, again, I'm never going to be the person to say, having lived through so many different economic cycles, right? And social cycles, I'm never going to say, just sit back and wait to see what happens, or this is the worst that it's ever going to be, because yeah. it's not, in the case, it's always yeah. been bad, especially Yikes. intersectionally. <laughs> and if we're playing our role in that bigger change, that's the thing of, of thinking about it from a body of work perspective, knowing that anytime that we do show up on social, and I think more and more these days, y'all are the more the experts, I think, in this rather than I am, but it is an imprint. It's part of what is going to be that legacy based on how it is that we're responding and yeah. what we're contributing in a given time. And sometimes yeah. there's that really like white hot truth that needs to happen where you're really sharing something that needs to be said. Mm -hmm. And then other times it's really important to be providing comfort, guidance, mentorship when people are going through a hard time. Yeah. I like that a lot because it's like your vulnerability then becomes almost a tool to demonstrate like your message to the world. Like it's like that real-time processing of what's happening or that real-time vulnerability that you're displaying yeah. becomes just a part of a larger narrative of who you are. Yeah. I, I like that. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest. When you said you amplified, I got a little sweaty. I was like, I don't know if I want me amplified. Like, I don't There, There are parts of me. I don't know if I, you know, like that does. Woo, the world does not need that. So, That's so funny. That gives me gives me a box to put that in. I won't do a live coaching session with you here, Kayla, but I would say Probably it does. And in general, we're allowed to privacy where we are 100% sovereign beings that not everybody has to know everything about ourselves. We're so multidimensional. And I think that's part yeah. of 
what people can sometimes be afraid of is that like, I have to be sharing every part of myself. I think we can absolutely have private parts of ourself. And that overall, when I look at this integrated life, I think like Adriel was saying, I think about it where for me, it's just too hard to try to pretend to be somebody that I'm not. If I'm like pretending to have a carefully curated mm. or to have this like super hard separation between it's, it's just work and then I go in my personal life, that's not really the way that I see it. But to be right. deliberate about recognizing it over time, the more that we're integrating ourselves in our life, in our community, which is the benefit, I think, of local community, is people see you on a different level. It's it's harder to not be showing up for people to know all of yourself and your idiosyncrasies than it is when we're just interfacing with each other online. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. You mentioned intersectionality earlier, and I'm just curious mm-hmm. if your guidance ever shifts or is different for people that belong to less represented identities. Because I, you know, there's definitely a lot more. You know, I'm if I'm just going off of my own work and working mm-hmm. in the DEI space, I know for a fact I do way more emotional later labor than my white counterparts who just come into this work and they don't have the lived experiences that I've had that actually got me to this place and wanting to do this work. So I'm just curious to hear from your experience and the work that you're doing, if that, if that Mm -hmm. looks different. hundred percent. It's interesting because in the, in the work that we do here and by design, I'm in deep relationship with folks that are here, but I don't do any program development. I don't do any direct work. So every program that's here is led by BIPOC entrepreneurs, specifically by and for their community in whatever kind of context that they want. And some of that is very deliberate, being a white woman, knowing the dynamic that even my physical presence can have in a gathering. So let's say we have you know indigenous women entrepreneurs, or we might have black founders or something else like that. There's very clear conscious ways. And I think some of the need for spaces are where they're can be like really clear conversations about when it is helpful and not helpful for me to be in a space. Mm -hmm. So part of that is where, and even though it's my own space, (laughs) you know what I mean? So if there's a gathering, it's why we have a model where people get a key, we call them key guardians, so that I'm not here hovering all the time, that even though I have a personal relationship and in many cases friendship with people here, my physical presence for other people that might be coming can be extremely uncomfortable just because of sociologically, like what it is that it represents Sure, to having a white woman hovering, which is no shock to you, right? A real thing. And so where we are deliberate of talking about areas in which we are engaged, and I think about it a lot locally of when and how I might be invited into a conversation where as part of that conversation, identity is always a really key piece. And mm-hmm. so in in the day-to-day, like it comes up usually as the result of being in relationship with people through time where there is really just access to the space. Because mm-hmm. what I find locally in local economic development, there and it was just so you know, interesting to see it real time mm-hmm. when we first opened here and as people would come in and my own, my white folks or people who were here kind of from the establishment, they're like, oh, okay, Pam, what kind of leadership or small business program are you creating for these people? You know? And I'd be like, I'm not creating anything because the problem is not that there is a lack of leadership or that they don't have everything they need. We need a space that feels free. I mean, liberating free, right? And then also not having a barrier economically. But there's a very deliberate reason, I think, why it is that we can have a deeper relationship through time where there's that experience first. There's an awareness you might have of coaching versus therapy Mm -hmm. where somebody might raise something in a coaching situation. You're (laughs) like, you know what? I'm probably not the best person to talk to. So that happens to me intersectionally where I'm like, you know what? I realize I'm giving you advice, you know, to an indigenous woman or a black woman that is probably not helpful because I don't have enough context. I suggest that you might talk to XYZ person. So it's beautiful, but requires a lot of like truth telling and work on my side. But I just try to make it really clear from the beginning whenever people are coming in and my kids tell me I'm just so awkward and like, that's okay. Because <laughs> I will talk about identity right from the beginning. I feel like I have to yeah. just to make it okay for that thing to be said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if that makes yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. 
Is there any advice you would give to leaders who are struggling with just being open to speaking about that, just being able to push past that discomfort? First of all, it's leadership. It's a core part of leadership. Identity and power dynamics drive so much of what is saying and being said and it's unspoken in a workplace mm -hmm. that, first of all, you're just creating a wedge, I think, between yourself and people that you work with. And mm. you're not allowing the real work to happen. Also, fundamentally, for, for just speaking for my own community for white folks, it's discomfort will not kill us. It's part of really, really necessary work that we have to do. And if we want to be in a successful business, in an organization that people actually want to be working in, that people that do come from different backgrounds and identities, not talking about it is a much, much, much stronger signal rather than, than mm. talking about it. I think we found our quote graphic for the episode. <laughs> White folks, being uncomfortable is okay. We can be, we can be uncomfortable. Oh, yes. How many times do we have to say the goddamn thing? You know, I yeah, mean, it's yeah, just, yeah, literally. I think one of the common conversations I have, so I facilitate a lot of leadership workshops and people often conflate feeling unsafe with feeling uncomfortable. And I always yeah. have to clarify because I'm like, your safety is not being challenged, right? You just feel very uncomfortable and that's okay because it's, it's going to be fleeting, right? Versus the experiences of people that last a lifetime in some cases, so... Oh my God, there's a metaphor for America in there. Isn't there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Truly. Yeah. 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 Oh, well, I would be, I mean, just a pivot a little bit. Like, we've talked a lot about like individual identity and kind of individual professional branding. Let's, for the lack of a better word, let's call it. You've done a lot of work in the licensing and like IP space mm. recently. And I remember even, even a few years back, I remember going to you and, and, and sitting through some of your courses around licensing. So you've been in this space a long time. Hmm. How do you think about that? Like the individual like helping someone create intellectual property kind of around what they know and who they are while bringing in that like individual identity and vulnerability that we've been talking about, whether that's like sharing it online on social media or kind of that intersectionality of marginalized spaces, like all that kind of has to get baked into that. And it's a, it gets a little sensitive and messy when you're looking at it from a like legal intellectual property standpoint, right? It does. I think contextually, it is where we are still in an overwhelmingly capitalist, you know, white supremacy culture you don't say. Community, country, <laughs> environment. And yeah. so for a lot of it, it is navigating within that world, which includes usually a very specific way in which we look at what are ideas and how do you protect them? Of course, it, based on really the individual. Hey. For me, the it goes to body of work and it it's related actually to the kind of change over time that I like to see with, with the work, which is I call my clients architects of liberatory change. So there's one Ooh, thing when you like think that. of what it is to make change and one can make change really powerfully in community of speaking up and having conversations and, and inciting people, you know, to see a different view and all of those kind of things, actively protesting. There's a whole range of things obviously people do. I'm really looking to how can we replace a lot of the harmful structures of how things are operating with more liberatory structures. And I found in specifically that the voices that often hold the liberatory structures are not white voices and folks. And so when we look at, again, who has been historically under-recognized is a term my friend Chloe uses, which is not under-represented, but under-recognized, that that to me directly tied like to the relationship at Ke of recognizing leadership is there Models have been there for the longest time. And I see often, and again, I'm just speaking for my own community that I recognize, but I often see white authors who are coming in like, look at this revolutionary thing, like Jason Kelsey's haircut. <laughs> it's just like, oh my yeah. God, you created a new haircut. And he was like, no, I went to a black barbershop and this is like not that. And so where there is all this appropriation of different models that have come from community, I get really passionate about ways in which that can be codified and shared and attributed to people who actually are creating that change. That's for me where my passion comes. Mm. I think about it in using the skills that I have now over so many years of knowing how to build training programs and 
understanding licensing where it can be used to be sharing things that are really be going to be helpful for the world. So that's in general what guides me when I think about that work. And from a body of work perspective, it is an approach that you have. And this is where I just get nerdy from a service business perspective, because it is harder to just show up and make magic. Like I think a lot of us do, whether you're leading a workshop or you're having a conversation or coaching, we can literally use our own magic, which just involves all of our experience and our every bit about us in order to make change. It can be tiring. And now at 57, right? I've never been more in love with my work. I'm like excited by it. And I notice there's a different level of energy that I want to be spending. And it is a heavier lift if I don't have things codified. When I begin to really help myself and my business to be creating structures that can be leveraged. And then when I look at structures that can be leveraged by other people, where you have something like a certification, other people can be trained, where that work ultimately, some of the ultimate reflection of work that is licensed can be where it's really embedded, these new ways are maybe embedded in the practice of how organizations run, how leadership happens. So it, it's the example we were talking about, like what, what would make leaders maybe not to have to you to have 55 conversations, you know, a year about why it's important to be vulnerable and just to talk about identity openly. Like imagine there was an approach that was just embedded in the way that many organizations were run much like, I don't know, Six Sigma or whatever else kind of thing is there. That's where that IP and that perspective can really guide and be shaped by others. So there's an impact perspective And then there's also an implementation perspective. And then really pragmatically for service business owners, there's always, there's also the side that is actually easier to run. And then you individually as the founder or creator of the content don't have to be the one who's constantly creating magic with your human self. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. I, for one, I love that you have spun, you put this positive spin, like showing up and using your own magic when most of us just call that winging it. <laughs> Sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, no, it's not. I'm not winging it. I'm using my own magic. I love that. <laughs> but like, I love also that you've, you've framed it as like, it's not just about, you know, the, like you said, capitalistic, like money making opportunity mm-hmm. in this licensing. Of course, there is mm-hmm. that. But it's also about creating space for yourself, giving yourself the ability to kind of create a repeatable model that gives you the ability to rest and not have to rely on your own magic, right? Oh, fam, that's been so good. I've got like seven different things you've got my mind spinning on. But I hope um, those of us who are in spaces that are being shifted in terms of workforce skills Mm. and layoffs and all that, like really take some of your advice to heart in terms of just kind of reimagining the work that you do and how you talk about it and how you show up and are present and lean into these, what did you call them? Liberatory change mechanisms? That's right. Well, the, be an architect of liberatory change. When we think about it in it. your own way, in your own way, in your own world, and in some ways it could be showing up a different way for people around you, for people in your workplace, when you know how people are being impacted differently. For other people, it is literally changing the nature of the work that you do because you see at this moment in time you need to be architecting now something that may be activated 10 or 20 years from now. Those are That's yeah. part of seeing each other's role. There is no role that's, that's better than the other. Mm-hmm. But I don't really see any, any other way to think about it you know, than looking yeah. at what's needed in the environment and then creating our living really based on that, on our skills and strengths. Because just every other way, and I, just I, how I'm motivated personally, I talk to my kids about it a lot too, It's just when I start to look at the overwhelming part of how many things are messed up in the world, it's easy just to feel totally deflated. Mm. And Uh, that's not a way to live. Like we can find joy, we can find connection. And to me, it's always in building things with people. That's where the joy comes. That's like the delight I feel. I have the greatest team in the entire universe. And just every time I get to do something with them, I'm just on the roof with excitement. And it can be dorky of like creating some participant guide that just sings with its beauty. <laughs> like I get so excited about that. And that <laughs> we need we need that daily joy in order to keep the fuel for the long haul. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Thank you so much, Pam. This has been a great conversation. I appreciate you coming on. Truly. Thanks for having me. 
I really love her call to action to be an architect of liberatory change. I have thought a lot about the capitalist dynamic and how do you kind of exist under capitalism as an entrepreneur and still make positive societal change and not get trapped in that kind of hamster wheel. Mm -hmm, and I feel like mm -hmm. Pam has been organizing people thinking creatively about that for a long time. Yeah. She had some really great insight. I Something else that stood out to me was when she mentioned the use of underrecognized. And it just has me now thinking about sort of our evolution of language. You know, I, as of, I'd say the past year, have used like less represented, right? There's been underrepresented, mm. marginalized individuals, all these labels that we've assigned to people. And so I really liked that term. I hadn't heard that underrecognized term. And, you know, now it's going to have me kind of going down a rabbit hole, but I'm excited, yeah. like just so much good <laughs> insight. And I love that she was open to exploring it, the concept of intersectionality and what that means for her work, too. For I sure. That was really powerful. And hopefully leaders, you were listening to that. I think she had some really great yeah. advice to share. Yeah. And I think she's modeling that really well in terms mm -hmm. of creating space for those communities without feeling like she has to like dictate to them or hover around them or even like provide them with quote unquote resources. She's like, Absolutely. no, they don't need resources. They, they've got their, they've been doing this. Right. Like, they're already yeah, leaders. I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Good stuff. All right. What What's your good news for the week? My good news for the week is that Franklin, which is the first black Peanuts character, finally has an origin story. Apple TV is streaming the origin story of Franklin. It's called Snoopy Presents Welcome Home Franklin. And it's uh, essentially about how Franklin met Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, Snoopy, and the rest of the, the squad. But I think it's just a really, really great story. If you're not familiar, the background of Franklin, Franklin kind of came about from the illustrator Charles Schultz back in 1968. Someone wrote to Schultz and it was actually a white school teacher and she was not sure how to navigate the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and she suggested that Schultz create this character. Schultz had already been thinking about creating a character, more specifically adding a black character, but was a little hesitant because he didn't really know how to put it in so many words. And so he ended up adding this character to a, an illustrated comic strip in 1968. And then later, Franklin appears in the television or televised episode of a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving, which had a lot of controversy. I used to watch that almost every Thanksgiving as a kid, but the controversy came with the fact that Franklin was sitting on one side of the table by himself. Not yeah. to give away this new special, but they pretty much revisit that that scene in this new, I don't know, sort of, I keep wanting to call it his like villain origin story, but Franklin is far <laughs> from a villain. <laughs> but it's Franklin's origin story again on Apple TV+. Plus. Well, don't give away and, the yeah. plot. I mean, we don't know where he might end up. By the you end you the, know, uh, I'm just, you know, I'm just going with little sweet, innocent Franklin. <laughs> but yeah, really good stuff. I was excited to see that being revisited. Yeah. So yeah. It's really hard to think in our society, like where we live now, how important the introduction of things like Franklin, or I imagine mm -hmm. that like that Mr. Rogers special where he and his, who, was it his mailman where they like share a pool? Yeah. Like those tiny things like mm -hmm. that, those were huge moments. And right. we just don't appreciate how bold they were because they seem so benign now. Right, right. They were really progressive for the time though. Yep. For sure. They really were because those yeah. were, I mean, media isn't what it was today. Like it doesn't have that, like, like any little movement like that had so much more impact because it wasn't as dispersed. Very Absolutely. few TV channels, very few outlets. Anyway. Yeah. But Absolutely. things didn't go viral. Maybe, or maybe <laughs> they true. did in a, in a good, good <laughs> in a different way. different way, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, my good news is an interesting new turn of events with Mark Cuban's online pharmacy cost plus drugs. Bayer is the latest name brand drug maker to offer a deal on a popular contraceptive that it will sell online on cost plus drugs. This is obviously wouldn't be a huge, <laughs> a huge thing if it wasn't for the fact that we are living in a post row world, mm -hmm. but kind of a big deal when women are struggling to get any kind of decent contraceptive care or, you know, abortion care on basically anywhere, but especially mm -hmm. online. 
this is a pretty big deal because the, the whole point of the website and the selling point is that it's offering drugs at a steep discount, mm -hmm. basically trying to bypass middlemen called pharmacy benefits managers. It mostly sells generics, but it's been slowly adding brand name products as well. And for our friends listening outside of the U.S., the pharmaceutical industry and the insurance that hoops that you have to jump through to get the, these drugs are it's just a shit show. Yeah. So cost plus drugs is trying to create a market basically for going around that and creating some efficiencies that they can then sell back to consumers. Yep. So the head of U.S. pharmaceuticals at Bayer, Sebastian Gutt, called this a test and learn basically mm -hmm. to see how this works. But. I see this as a benefit. It's going to expand access to patients. They're going to have to pay out of pocket, skipping their insurance. But even with that, consumers, they, get, they give an example in this article, even with a $117 price tag at cost plus, it's still a lot cheaper mm -hmm. to just get the generic through insurance without a copay. That's yeah. wild to me. Yeah. Yeah. There was a survey from 2022 and apparently 40% of those that, that would want to be taking birth control didn't realize that most insurances cover birth control pills. A lot of them are generic brands but or generic yeah. prescriptions, but a lot of health insurances actually cover it. And so that that is not something that's widely known. And so part of this deal, I think, was to help with that as well. So yeah, look at Mark Cuban rallying I for know, us in the a, DEI a space good thing. <laughs> and <laughs> on Twitter it's and also supporting women's rights and female yeah, I mean, rights. Now we just need to have this shit go over the counter and not even need a prescription. Yeah. At this right. Point. I mean, that's what I, I've got friends that have been advocating for this for years. Like yep. it's ridiculous. The hoops that women have to jump through to even get contraceptive care in this country. Yeah, Like it makes travel hard. It makes like just existing hard because of how regulated it is. And it's just ridiculous. Yeah. Some of this medicine is like basic healthcare. Yeah. One would think. One would think. There was a, that pill that was approved, contraceptive pill that was approved over the counter last year that's expected to be available this year. But I have not heard any other news about it. Fingers crossed oh, that it actually me. goes through. The FDA did approve it, so I was shocked. I mean, I'm re really hoping that becomes the case because it is just so silly. Agreed. All right. Well, good times. Glad we got to chat with Pam a little bit. Good luck, Donald Trump, on writing a huge check. And mm. hopefully, uh, you know, you can ke keep selling Trump sneakers or whatever else you need to. You know what? I'm not even going to wish him luck. I can't even, I can't even jokingly wish him luck. <laughs> Trump but sneakers. But we will... <laughs> Is that like a easy will, mashup? Uh, I can't. <laughs> oh, that's a real life story. That's a real life. That's not even that's not even a thing. Anyway, we thanks so much for everyone for listening. Always great to have you. We will chat with you next week. Please reach out to us on Instagram, leadership. No. Please reach out to us on Instagram. That's leader sh underscore t. Or hit us up on our website, leadership.show. And in the meantime, we will be keeping our ear on the week's news and finding you good news as always. And we'll chat with you next week. See you then. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Leadership. Our producer is Dave Sandell. Thinking about starting your own podcast? Connect with him at davesandell.com. You can find more information about Caleb and his work and even hire him to speak on change leadership at calebgardner.com or 18coffees.com. And find his book, No Point B, Rules for Leading Change in the New Hyperconnected, Radically Conscious Economy, wherever books are sold. You can find more about me, Adrielle, and my diversity, equity, and inclusion work at adrielleparker.com. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash adrielleparker for more candid discussions on DEI and for more insight on inclusive leadership.